Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York City-based Tony Award-winning nominated Broadway star, actor, jazz singer, and author Melissa Errico. We had a good conversation about her new 2022 CD, Out of the Dark, the film noir project. We talked about COVID life and so much more. Along with her performance life, she contributes regularly to the New York Times in an essay called Scenes from an Acting Life. At the height of the pandemic, she was exceptionally busy, offering multiple multiple live streams and conversations, and publishing essays for Variety, Playbill, and the New York Times. And she was busy cooking, and she had two series on IGTV documenting that. Enjoy this interview. Melissa, thank you for taking a minute out today. I appreciate it. No problem. First of all, I want to talk about your new album, Out of the Dark. And before I get to that point, we've gone through a really strange period on planet Earth for the last two years. And uh, hopefully, we have? In- <laughs> Twilight oh, I Zone. hope we're out of it. I, I don't even know. But yes, the, the, the whole time my visual for this pandemic has been David Lynch in the middle of Times Square with like five people walking around smoking a cigarette. That's been my kind of way of visualizing this whole thing, how bizarre it's been. That's interesting because I, I in my liner notes, I talk about that, that how Manhattan has become had become desolate with empty yeah. theaters and barren streets. That was a part of the intuition that led me to, while I was watching noir movies trapped in my own home with my three children, I started to feel some kind of conflation between the isolation and desolation and strangeness of our world and something that's conjured in these movies, the film noir uh, style movies of the 40s, something about the inescapable sort of doom that we were living, you know, it, it yet had its own allure and had something beguiling about it, and yet, obviously, stressful. <laughs> How did you survive during this period? I know that, you know, you're, you're a busy musician and on Broadway, there's so much that goes into live performance. How did you cope and get through this, especially artistically? I, I coped immediately by stabilizing uh, my family because my husband is Patrick McEnroe, a tennis player. And he's one of the first public figures who got the virus. And uh, there was nothing, nobody knew what it, anything about it at the time. It was the first week that it started. And he was sick. And then nobody knew what you do with someone who has this. And you can't get a test. I will never forget the fact that we were one of the first families, not only in the newspaper and on the news and everything, but we were in my town and anywhere, you know, up in the Bronx area. Just I had no idea what to do and no one would bring us stuff or come near our house, you know. It was a strange feeling. I have three preteen daughters. It was like little women and the husband's gone off to the Civil War and I'm alone with the the girls, with the women, you know, and the dog. It was a, an immediate intuition of survival, you know, and uh, practical um, matters. Nothing really to do with my creative life. It was immediately a question of uh, what are the practical things that have to be done in this world. My husband was sick. My father was in the Vietnam War, and I spoke to him on the phone, and he said, I think this is a wet virus, and I think he needs to be behind something plastic. And this is all crazy talk. My mother said, open the windows. You know, this is what you used to do in the years of polio and, and even her ancestors dealing with yellow fever. So, I mean, I don't know if you really, this is what you're really asking, but this is how I survived was right away with more practical matters of how to survive because I didn't know what was going on. I live in a very small house, suburban house, with a basement. So I put my husband in the basement, uh, which was my quick intuition because there was an exterior door 
and I put a shower curtain up and I nailed him into this space. And he had plenty of room. I made it really nice really quickly. And I went up to my oldest daughter, who might have been 13, and I said, Victoria, I need you to work. And she was so scared. And I said, you're old enough to handle this. We have to prepare up space for your father. I wasn't being weird. And she was amazing. And we worked really quick and made him a bed. And he just didn't feel well. And so we made him a bed. We bought some fruit down. We put vitamins. We prepared a, what I would consider a, you know, a, a nice living space. There is a bathroom. And put his toiletries and uh, told him to get, gather some clothes. And he came downstairs and he stayed there for a month. We couldn't get a test. So it took like a week or two. He wasn't well. Plus we had to get a test. And he didn't believe in, because he wasn't so, so, so sick, he didn't go to a hospital. But he also wasn't so, so sick that he wanted to do what was being offered, which was a celebrity doctor who would, for $700, a text, a text, counsel him. And my husband said, this is what's wrong with this country. He has never soapboxed about this. But he had a very strong feeling during the pandemic that uh, people like him were being given opportunities to be looked after that others weren't. So he said, I'm going to do this the old-fashioned way. And he kept calling 1-800-1-800. And he couldn't get his COVID test. So anyway, eventually he got a COVID test. And it was a month's time before they could understand where our safety was fine, was okay, you know, to get him back, integrate back into the house. Anyway, that's a, the, the immediate story was just instantly trying to navigate the illness and our safety and his wellness. And we cooked, me and the girls, and we had a cooking show. <laughs> so once I knew he was stable, I, had, I could see that the house needed a little, um, you know, fun. And I created a, a board where everybody had a, this really was like little women. I, I put a board up with a Monday through Friday and the times of the day. We had times of the day for schoolwork. Obviously, school was continuing right onto Zoom. I hated that word Zoom. I got so annoyed. I was sure we'd never need to learn what this is. So I resisted it. And I, of course, <laughs> it became the only way of living. But at first, I thought, what is this Zoom stuff? I hate this. The girls continued classical ballet. I set up two ballet areas in the house. We had time where we all had to work. Everybody had to do the toilets. Everybody had to do everything. The girls were incredible. They helped me make the charts. And we went and took walks with dad and the dog outside. I had no fear of the fresh air. And we walked a little separated from him. And I just got everyone on a routine. Like I was, a, <laughs> I was actually, I'm a good woman to take, you know, in colonial times, you know, for westward expansion. I'm definitely someone you want on your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> So I was cutting everyone's hair and making meals and even making it fun. We had a cooking show, which is on my Instagram, if anyone out there is interested. Uh, people still watch all the episodes. They're rather nice. I edited them, and they were funny, and uh, usually about the history of something, like pesto or something. I literally would research and do kind of an interesting cooking show with the girls. We We ended up making it a family time, but the practical will be the first thing I always remember, which was... Uh, how the virus works and how we are doing our civil service by not interacting with other people. I had to teach that to three young children, that they couldn't see other people because you could pass something. And then like a ball that hits another ball and then another ball hits it. And I showed them this diagram that actually Obama had passed around from the Washington Post. To teach them about staying in your own space as an act of um, caring for others. A very hard concept to to communicate. 
hope that wasn't no. too long an answer, but that's how no. I survived the pandemic. I, I survived no. it by understanding yeah. it and, and, and enlisting my children and family to a pattern right away of survival. I'm very glad that you did open up that way about that. And I, I think about in Kansas City, we just won the Super Bowl, so we had a big parade in February. And that was right before everything shut down. And I kept thinking that was the last largest gathering on planet Earth, probably, because there was almost a million wow. people that just came out. Of course, no one knew. Um, and, and, and the afterglow people said that if the uh, 49ers would have won and it would have happened in San Francisco, the spread would have been a lot more intense and different than it would have been because we weren't by a coast. It wasn't, hadn't really spread much here yet. I had but, a concert in Florida on March 9th, all the music of Michelle Legrand at the Broward Center in Fort Lauderdale, a beautiful theater. And a lot of people canceled, but a lot of people came. And we sat them all sort of apart and didn't know what we were doing. Like, and yeah. we didn't, there were no masks. I traveled with Clorox wipes. Like, it was also weird. I, didn't, I thought maybe that was something you have to clean up after yourself. So it was also, I mean, that was on the 9th of March. Patrick was in the basement by the end of the weekend. Kids were canceled school on Thursday. Uh, school was canceled. And Thursday the 12th, I had my debut at Lincoln Center planned. First time I ever sang solo there. And that was canceled the night before, and I was devastated. So show business was immediately just all, like I said, the 9th I performed, flew home on the 10th, and the world was, Super weird by the 11th, at least in my yeah. area. Yeah, it was it was in a bad way. You know, with all of that being said, you have a new album. We are at the end of this, hopefully, at the end of this pandemic, and the live shows are opening up. How relieving is it to have this album out now? Well, it's very very relieving because the the album was something I um, I started making uh, in the summer of 2020. I was asked. To, to do uh, a concert for the fall, as everybody knew right, you know, knew clearly there'd be no theaters opened. They asked me to do a live stream at the French Institute beautiful concert hall in New York City, and I had recently been doing a lot of music of Michel Legrand, jazz uh, and film, and more well, mostly a film composer with a very very strong jazz adjacency. One of the most beautiful songwriters in the world, and I had done. When he passed, I had written actually his eulogy and I, in the New York Times, and I had done a film festival for the French Institute. And then when this pandemic started, they couldn't get French artists in this big, beautiful concert hall. They asked me if I would do a concert there to keep uh, my live stream, just to keep the theater alive and, and happening. And I said, sure. And I got to engaging with the producers, and I told them of my interest in film noir as well as the French-American sort of French movie uh, art form, and they were interested in that. So I ended up making a series, a, a three-part series, live stream on their stage. The live streams went so exceptionally well that a lot of the fans and people on these talkbacks were saying, you must make a record of this. And the pandemic continued, of course, through 2021. And then I did put my thoughts into uh, making an album of what is noir, See, if you're a jazz person, you have thoughts about noir jazz. There are stations called noir jazz. There are books galore on what noir is as a visual sensibility. Noir is comes out of a almost gangster novel, existential novel genre. 
noir is one of those words that people love to toss around and turn around. What makes it so interesting is that it has no definition. So the more I got into it and the more I even applied it to what the pandemic was feeling like, it's all about people who are feeling isolated and out of control, a feeling that fate is controlling you, that you have uh, no, that, that you, the, sort of the quality of your destiny. Um, and what are your desires, your obsessions? It's an obsessive, longing, fate-obsessed kind of art form. Quite an interesting thing, and it has a jazz ethic in it. It really does. There's a cabaret singer in almost every noir movie or a jazz score by Miles Davis or an interesting song. So anyhow, I, I was making this album, and the pandemic persisted. You know, who thought it would be um, a pandemic that kept returning, you know, and not really ending, which almost made it more noir, so anyway, I made this album and I hope people like it and will both, you know, groove to the retro songs like uh, Angel Eyes, you know, the famous Angel Eyes that everybody loves, Sinatra's version. Great Oscar Levant music, David Raxon, heavy jazz, beautiful songs like Detour Ahead. And then look ahead at more contemporary uh, noir songs that I have on there um, by a jazz artist named Patricia Barber, who's very much a contemporary of mine. Other things like that. So it's a it's a noir album that I hope um, entangles you a little bit in the past and the present. I really enjoyed the album. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy it. I'm curious, how did this jazz journey begin for you? How did you fall in love with the art form, and how did it lead you to where you're at today? Well, here's the thing. I, must, I think I've always been a jazz adjacent. This is my new thing. All the jazz artists that I've worked with, a lot of really big-time ones, they call me jazz adjacent. I think jazz, in a funny way, has been with me since I was a little girl. My father is a piano player and is an amazing concert pianist. And he is he gravitates to French uh, romantic music. He gravitates to Ravel and Poulenc. Michel Legrand was his leisure activity. He knew the movie songs. And he, if you listen to Poulenc, you're almost listening to Legrand. It's like it's in there somewhere. The chords, the chromatic world is somehow very adjacent to Michel Legrand. Some of Michel Legrand's biographers have talked to said that Poulenc, that Legrand would have been Poulenc in another time, that they, he was obsessed with Poulenc in return. So it may have been something in my father's sensibility that tossed around in my, in my mind and in my sort of taste, you know, for music or it, I, I liked it. It doesn't mean if you play it for us my children that don't care, but I had a sensibility I cared, my father cared for. He played a lot of Bill Evans in the house as well. He was interested in what Bill Evans was doing in the 70s and I was growing up. So maybe some kind of curiosity and just an understanding of certain textures and music. Then, of course, I went on very quickly to have a Broadway career where I was taught to learn music very much on the page and do exactly what you're told. <clears throat> the art form of musical theater is to play Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady or some other show and do it as it's written. There is jazz in that music. Cole Porter was jazz influenced, a lot of vaudeville and tap dancing and there's a lot of jazz vernacular in musical theater, but you sing it very square and you're playing a character. But I still got excellent musical training on Broadway and learned songs that now I can swing and now I can, I can basically ruin, you know, like I can sing for My Fair Lady with a whole swing band. And it's so fun because I did it for, you know, on Broadway and I, now I can really just do it wrong. And it's so fun. 
I think my jazz education was slightly delayed by by being a, a proper Broadway actress, but I still had that sensibility. And when I when Michelle Legrand wrote a Broadway show, I was so blessed to get to star in it. And on our breaks, he would play the Summer Nose or all his really far out songs. I knew them all, and he was a, someone who worked, of course, with Miles Davis and with Sarah Vaughan, and you know he he's just delicious musician, a person to be around, and he was so excited. His Broadway lady, leading lady, loved his music. So a relationship developed there where we played, we traveled, we made a record together. Phil Ramone produced it. And I think that maybe Michelle Legrand was the catalyst to kind of make me dream outside or even between. He didn't really have any regard for genre. Michelle Legrand just sit down and just play his music and then he'd be in a Shirley Horn rhythm and then he'd be swinging and then he'd be rubato and he just didn't care what anybody, he didn't really care about anything. He just does whatever he wants, which is beautiful. Melissa, you have to be more free, more free, Melissa, you know. That's a kind of jazz in its own sense. And then Ted First came into my life, John Otto before that, who played for Rosemary Clooney. So, so my arrangement started being more jazz influenced. And then those chords that my father taught me started popping up, these beautiful chromatics thrown into music that was normally very square. And I was, yes, keep doing that. I encourage the pianist. So it's been a little process being an actress who knows this music and then being given a few mentors that let me explore the borders of it, you know, the boundaries or the boundarylessness of it, you know. I'm not really a jazz singer yet, but I think that I think that I want to do more of it, you know. I think I want to live in it, the environment more and still communicate the way I know how to communicate, which is through vibrato, through uh, emotion, through understanding of the lyrics, um, but celebrating the instrumentalists, let them play, let them inform me emotionally. I think I have something to add to the party, I hope. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and I'm curious how these worlds, how the, the, the right and left part of your brain, so to speak, work. You know, as an actress, you have the confines of a script, but with jazz, it's improv and free. Is there something relieving about kind of jostling between those two art- artistic worlds for you? Yeah, no, well, I don't, well, I don't scat. I'm learning to vary the melody a little just for my own sense of release or even if my, my ear gets tired of hearing the melody. But a lot of people who I play with just encourage me just to sing it as it's written. And then maybe a few melodic changes. Where I think something interesting happens, which may not happen with jazz singers, is that for the most part, I know where these songs, a lot of these songs, at least the ones I choose to sing, all of the American standards and all of the theater standards that could be applied to jazz, even Sondheim's work, I know where they came from. I know the characters, they were actually written usually for stories. Or I hear the lyric like an actress would hear the lyric. Like, where is it, like if it's a desolate song, it really shouldn't be a samba or some kind of party song. It can, but it's like, like I might just know what the song is really, you know, its essence is. And maybe we can explore 5,000 different ways, but I probably will thread of common sense uh, that I'll impose on the process, just that the song is the sleeping bee, it's a poem, it's about, but if it's really hyper, the bee isn't sleeping. You know, like, uh, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. The bee is sleeping in the palm of your hand. Like, I will never lose sight of that, that language 
So I think that I will make a pianist really imagine what a sleeping bee sounds like. And we can do anything and for as long as we like, but we must let the bee sleep. This sounds super poetical of me, but I think what makes uh, makes for an exciting formula for the future, of course I'm getting older and I don't really want to do this if it's not interesting, is that a lot of people ask me when I'm performing, am I the character that the song was written for or am I me? Because let's say I'm doing something like Loving You from Sondheim, which is a very specific song about this psychotic woman uh, in a musical called Passion. She's essentially a stalker. And she uh, it's a jazzy song, but she in the play, I mean, I make it a jazzy song, but in the play she appears on a train platform and the young man who's trying to actually get away from her is getting sick because she's really stalking him and she loves him and he's a beautiful soldier. He doesn't want this ugly, sick, paranoid woman to follow him around and wouldn't you know she shows up on the train and sits next to him. Mm. The audience wants to kill themselves when this happens. It's like this woman is intolerable and she sings this song, Loving You. Now, Loving You is about, it says, it's not a choice, it's who I am. It's a really intense song. But when I sing it, I don't always play Fosca. Fosca is a really sick person. But the point of her song is that loving you gives her purpose, a sense of purpose. And so I have tried with other with jazz pianists to find the warmth in the song, to find the sense of purpose in that kind of love. It's a little desperate, but it's, on some bigger level, it can be a universal song. Um, so in other words, I start to bring my own Italian girl, uh, La Vivade, <laughs> to the song. Hmm. And it's a cocktail of both what Sondheim's pressure, he meant this to be a pressurized song, you know, what? It, but I never lose sight of that, but I'm also not literally playing this woman with beady eyes who doesn't care about the person she's singing too. She just cares about her own intensity. I put some jazz alchemy on these kind of things without losing sight of where they came from. So a lot of people ask me when I'm working, they're like, are you you or are you the character? And I can't always answer that because I have some weird ability to be both. And the jazz players usually pick up on it because they feel like, wow, Melissa's got a lot going on. And then they just play and they, they put a lot of crazy chords in and then... I might cry or laugh or be really, really sexy or something. It's a kind of, um, it's like a snow globe, you know, of Melissa's emotions. Sounds really weird, but. No, I, you know, and that leads me into my question here, and this will probably be a little bit easier to answer. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. You, you have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? You know, I have a childhood photo of me the day I was learning to walk. And I was looking out of the side of my eye in a way like I was excited about the next adventure. Like there was this little picture and you can see my mom just letting my fingers like barely holding her finger. And I was stepping and I was in this really cute little outfit that my grandmother's sister, who was a Ziegfeld Follies girl in 19... 
19 and all the way through the 30s. So we had a Ziegfeld girl in the family. She gave me this cute outfit, apparently, from Bonwit Keller. I'm only mentioning that because I'm imagining the picture and it's such a lovely family detail that a Ziegfeld Follies girl <laughs> was dressing me. Um, my parents had no money whatsoever. And uh, when I was learning to walk, I have this picture and my mom's letting go of my two fingers and I'm looking to the side with a little twinkle, like I can't wait for what's next. I think that's me. I think I have a mischief and a sense of uh, what's next. I don't belabor uh, things. I don't spend a lot of time uh, getting annoyed. Uh, I am annoyed always <laughs> about show business, but I don't. I don't spend a lot of time in that feeling. I just move on and explore. And I usually draw very artistic, fun people to me. Lots of great musicians, people like Michelle Sondheim and I used to write letters to each other, lots of letters. Um, lots of interesting um, gypsy type people. Uh, you know, I've been very lucky that they feel safe with me. Um, and maybe people who are frustrated also feel safe with me. And so maybe they'll write again, like if they're blocked or um, if they're trying something new. Adam Gopnik is a very good friend of mine, for example. He's a novelist and an essayist in New York, and he writes songs. And I think he's always felt invited to explore, to write. Um, so I'm good about... I'm, that's very much my nature, is I like being with other people, and I like looking for the next adventure with other people. Um, so maybe that's who I am, you know. And I hope the audience picks up... I think they do pick up on that that I don't really come out with a fixed idea about what I am and what we're doing tonight. I sure have a plan, and I have lots of great songs, but there's a little mischief, like she's looking out the side of her eye <laughs> for like hmm. someone funny in the audience or something weird to happen in the piano or an emotion to strike me that I didn't expect or a child in the audience to start dancing you know, or an autistic person to start you know, singing or a woman with dementia to start hollering at... Like, literally, anything can happen in my audience, and I won't be troubled by it. I like people to feel um, welcome and to feel like we can all be real. I like to be a little fantasy girlish, I won't lie. You know, I, you know, I like to dress nicely and give people a sense of, like, wow, look at her, you know. But it's more just to stir you, you know. It's to feel yeah. fun. I like the men to like me and the women to like me. You know, I want everyone to feel good. I've had enough life problems, so I don't really project like being perfect. But we work really hard so that we can have fun, you know. So I hope that answers your question. A sense of oh, mischief. Yeah. yeah, I think that is yeah. who I am. I think that is who I am. I might not be a natural brand, you know, easy to brand. But, you know, I'll let you guys worry about that. You put me on the air and you can say <laughs> what she is. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and I think that the beauty of your answer is that it's kind of come full circle. The first visual that you gave me was looking 44 floors up um, into New York City. And I love that. And, and just that, that this, this has been wonderful. Melissa, thank you for opening oh, up. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I totally appreciate it. Well, right on. I didn't expect that to be such a nice interview. That was one of the nicest interviews I ever had. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world. 
Giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Melissa for her time, energy, and class. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. And for all things Joe Domino, go to joedomino.com. And there, you can donate to the cause via Patreon or PayPal. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.